Hello and welcome back to the NatWest Women in Business podcast, a series championing female entrepreneurs and the business of breaking boundaries. I'm June Sarpong and in this episode we'll be sharing the story of another inspiring business owner, talking through the highs and the lows of being a boss, with the help from a special guest mentor and expertise from NatWest's own brilliant team of women in business specialists. If you're a woman thinking of starting your own business or are already on that path, we've plenty of tips for you. And across this series, we'll be covering areas ranging from food to tech, beauty to export and beyond. In this episode, we're starting somewhere a little tastier with a focus on running a social enterprise and balancing profit for purpose. Plus, we've top tips on building your network. Let's meet this week's featured woman in business. So we're now in the beautiful Victorian Great Western Arcade in Birmingham City Centre and we're just about to go in the shop which has been open since the end of October 2016. My name's Rosie Ginday, I'm the founder of Miss Macaroon. I absolutely love macaroons, I'm completely obsessed. I left school and went to college and while I was at college at my first job met a couple of homeless people and they really kind of changed my idea of everything that was shown about them in the media you know they're bad people drug addicts and alcoholics and they deserve to be where they were but actually these people were just really normal people and just had had something horrendous happen to them was completely outside of their control and I felt like I needed to do something in my career a bit more sustainable than just giving away my staff food or my tips so when I went to university just kind of thought about what I really wanted to do which probably should have done before I went to university but just kind of drifted into art and then realized I had a massive passion for food and it has a fantastic opportunity to bring people together and thought that I really wanted to create a community business. So Rosie what an amazing business story how exciting so what was your mission when you decided to set up the business? I wanted to provide employment opportunities for young care leavers. One of my close family members had been in care. So, yeah, I felt like I wanted to do something I was passionate in, which was create beautiful food. But also, and it is beautiful food. <laughs> <laughs> also, create opportunities for people as well. So, yeah, I think kitchens are an amazing space to train people and it's got great discipline, but also structures that you can really support people and nurture people and put a lot of time and effort into them and we're trying to bring that into the new shop now as well and it's really about our trainees becoming passionate about it becoming knowledgeable and really developing that relationship with our customers as well so can I ask why did you choose macaroons well I was looking for the right kind of product to create the social business and I made them once and they were perfect and then the second time I made them they were an absolute mess and I just became obsessed with getting it right getting it right (laughs) not just getting it right but like really understanding the science behind it and now you know we make sometimes 7,000 in a day and they're all as perfect the last one is as the first one and it's just because of that kind of intense knowledge and you know we're the only patisserie in the world that can Pantone match and again it's because of getting really passionate about the detail of it. Wonderful well right now I'm very pleased to welcome another guest to the studio who is going to be joining us to share some tips and advice. She's a veteran of the confectionery industry and a pioneer in this space as a social entrepreneur. A very warm welcome to Sophie Tranchill, the MD and driving force behind Divine Chocolate. 
I'm a fan of you as a businesswoman, as you know, uh, and also of your chocolates. Well, it's uh, lovely to see you. And always good to see you. So let's go back in time, as it were, to reflect on the story of Divine Chocolate, a groundbreaking business that's part owned by its cocoa farmers in Ghana and totally focused on making a difference in terms of fair trade and giving back to that community. Can you give us a whistle-stop tour on how that partnership came about, as this is not your average business model, is it? So the farmers in Ghana got together back in 1993 when the cocoa was liberalised in Ghana and a charismatic farmer saw the opportunity for farmers organising themselves and actually running a trading company. And so the farmers have done very well. They very quickly developed a reputation for being honest and efficient and one of the reasons they got that reputation was because they invested the first money they got in weighing scales and it meant that people could actually trust the transaction and then they employed people to maintain the scales Mm. so that they could be kept reliable and they carried around a 25 kilo weighing stone so you could ask to have the scales checked and that was the first time that had happened in Ghana so the fact that farmers who are very poor have to sell to the agent that's turned up and because they are needing cash yeah. they can't really challenge that transaction. Or negotiate. Yeah or yeah. negotiate whereas now they could actually trust the transaction and that meant people joined and thought Quapa was a good organisation but in the end it also changed the way business was done in Ghana so now everybody has good scales and they all have people to maintain them so that sort of sense of having raising the bar instead of lowering the bar in terms of the way business is done. They voted in their AGM in 1997 to set up a chocolate company and then here we are today. Mm. (laughs) I think in terms of setting up a chocolate company in the UK Mm. in 1998, that was an audacious proposition. You're up against some of the biggest companies in the world. This is a market in the UK that's worth £4 billion. It's 80% owned by now three multinational corporations. Yes. So that makes it an unfeasible proposition to set up saying, we're going to make a chocolate company work here. <laughs> but I like a bit of a challenge and I do think when people ask what would you do now if you did, you know if you knew now I actually think the fact that I didn't know the way the chocolate industry worked and I questioned everything actually was a benefit. And so that sort of sense that you challenged the way that everybody else was operating was probably helpful. Can I ask, because, you know, a lot of the times, one of the things that comes up most in terms of women in business is confidence levels. Mm. And to challenge the big boys like that, it takes a lot of guts. So where did you get that confidence from? I suppose I probably had it from childhood, actually. (laughs) I believe it. I I sort of (laughs) believed in myself. And also, I sort of had nothing to lose. I mean, so we, we had no company. It was worth a try, wasn't it? (laughs) This was great chocolate. It's a great story. Why wouldn't it work? Mm. And I think that passion becomes convincing. Yes. You know, compelling. Yes. And so I think people were prepared to sit through something that they were surprised they were prepared to sit through. And they learned something. When we started and we went into those buyers who normally talk to corporations about margins and how much they were going to spend above the line... When I said to them, well, where does chocolate come from? They looked like, who is this crazy lady? And I'm going, well, where does it come from? And they're going, Birmingham. And I'm going, well, they're going, Belgium, Switzerland. And I'm going, no, I mean, where does the ingredients come from for making it? And they're going, what ingredients? I'm going, the cocoa, where does it come from? And I'm going, well, it mainly comes from West Africa and it looks like a rugby ball. The cocoa pod looks like a rugby ball. And they're going... It does. It does. (laughs) Show me that picture. I want to take that picture home to show my wife. I've never seen anything like it. So that sort of sense that we were breaking the back of actually what did people think about chocolate. So you'd had a bit of exotic marketing about wine and you'd had exotic marketing about roast and ground coffee. Mm. But actually you hadn't had anything more than Switzerland and Belgium about chocolate. So that sense of starting to think where does something come from 
well, that's quite compelling. Yes. And then the other thing that we did, which was unusual, was we got consumers to go into shops and, and ask, ask for things for that weren't there. Yeah. So we had a postcard called Stop the Chalk and we got them to hand it into the supermarkets and it did a fantastic trick. It meant that when you went in there, they actually said, yeah, lots of people have been asking for this product. <laughs> <laughs> which obviously, if you've got customers going in, then that's a really good place to start. So as a woman, Sophie, was the early part of your career shaped by that or influenced by that in any way? Do you think women in business are different to men in business? I think being a woman selling chocolate's got to be a good thing because yeah. I think, you know, we're mainly we selling chocolate to women, aren't we? So <laughs> something like 80% of sales are to women. So we sort of know what we're talking about. And also the story of the women cocoa farmers is a compelling story because yeah. sort of everybody knows that if you get more money to women in developing countries, it's then they're going to have yeah. communities that thrive. Exactly. So that yeah. sort of sense of the story resonated with women. Mm. And as a woman saying it, it was probably more compelling. Mm. But I mean, I think I am very confident I'm happy to take risks. Okay. And I do think if I was giving advice, okay. it is being prepared to make a mistake. Yes. And, and I being think I th- fine with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what boys do and girls don't do, is that sort of sense of you don't want to get it wrong. And so you'd rather do nothing than get it wrong. Yes. And I think you need to be prepared to get it wrong. Yes. And you learn more from the mistakes you made mm-hmm. in a way than the successes, because the successes are a lucky coincidence yes. in a way. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the NatWest Women in Business podcast with me, June Sarpong. So, Rosie, I'm going to ask you, so when you first started Miss Macaroon, obviously it's a very niche product. Mm -hmm. How did you know that this product would be big enough to scale into a fully-fledged business? At the time that I set it up, I didn't think it would be. So I stayed in employment for a year while it built. It was at the time that kind of outside of London cupcakes were peaking. So I'd seen that single product dessert line could do really, really well. And the noises were coming kind of funnily enough from the fashion press which is really strange but actually it is it is so sex in the city you know that kind of thing it really does pick up on these things and there was some cool fashion collaborations labatans and ladderay and (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah just it was it was really cool so i could see that it was becoming the next big trend Mm. so it was really about getting the operation strong enough to establish ourselves as one of the first so how big did the company need to get before you felt confident enough to leave your job? And were you in full-time employment? Yeah, so I was a pastry chef, working kind of, yeah, 40 to 50 hours a week. And then on my days off, I would go to my college that I trained. They were absolutely fantastic. They gave me use of their kitchens for free. So I do production there, run the training courses over the summer. I was doing the pilot programs there. And yeah, it was brilliant. Really, really good fun. And we were able to get enough money in the bank to set up our own kitchen and then just went into it full-time from there. And how many people did you start with in the company? It was just me, you know, a good year and a half to two years. Really? Yeah, yeah. So the good thing with that is you know everyone's job because you've done it. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So Sophie, any tips for anyone listening in terms of how to get started and when to take the risk of actually starting your own business? Well, I think you've got two good examples here of you need to have a really good story, but what's most important is that you've got fantastic products. Mm. And it doesn't mean so whether the products are things that people eat or whether they're services you actually need to think they're the best Mm -hmm. because if you're going to spend night and day promoting them you have to have no doubt Mm. that they're good and so I think we're good examples of that I think the other thing that I would be interested in in terms of scaling up is about partnership 
And so partnership enables you to punch above your weight, to have uh, visibility more than you could get yourself. And so that sense of it's an excellent thing to do, but you do need to pick your partners. You need yeah. to make sure that they understand your goals and probably they share your goals, they share your mission. Which partners have you worked with that have been successful? Well, we've had a, a very nice support from people like Christian Aid and Comic Relief, who obviously share our mission to alleviate poverty in the world. Mm-hmm. We've had a very good long-term relationship with the co-op retail group, and so they converted all of their chocolate to fair trade in 2002. And sort of against the odds, they got us to supply it because we're not a manufacturer, and we were tiny. You know, it tripled our turnover. They took a leap of faith, but they did it for all the right reasons, which mm-hmm. are their sort of cooperative principles and values. And so this year, we're celebrating 15 years of that relationship and they're now making even more commitments on cocoa. And so that's been a fantastic relationship. But I think that sense of just because somebody's offering to do something with you, it's important to really work through what are they expecting out of it, what are you expecting out of it, to contract it, not thinking you're friends. I mean, I think think it's really important to (laughs) contract it, partly because nowadays people move, you know, or people go travelling. And so that sort of sense of you need this to be a proper formal arrangement where you've both understood what you're both going to put in and what you're both... And you know get the out. duration of it. And the you know the duration of yeah. it. So you can call it to account. But I also think you ought to be courageous enough to say no. You know, some things are better not done. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think having the confidence not to do things is important too. Great. And actually, I'm going to ask you, Rosie. Um, obviously, Sophie's product is slightly different, whereas yours, you created it yourself from mm-hmm. scratch. How much did you have to save in terms of yourself to be able to get started? What advice would you have for someone else who wants to set up a food company? So I started with £500 of my own money and then had some fantastic support, as I said, from my catering college and then just gradually grew the business. At that point, I was really risk averse, so I wouldn't have taken on any investment. So for me, it was just about keeping money in the bank. I guess I was afraid of taking that jump. And then, you know, when I saw that there was enough money in there, we had our own kitchen. Then I had the confidence to make that move. Now I took the first bit of investment on last year so the business was five years old Mm -hmm. to set up the new shop Mm -hmm. it's been really interesting actually because they're really really important lessons to learn bootstrapping you know just keeping everything as small as possible until you know that it's been tested and it works so we're moving to a kitchen now which is probably about five times the size of the one that we're in and, you know, it was like, oh, well, I want it to look as beautiful as the old one. Well, the old one was really small and it yeah. was very cheap to make it look beautiful. <laughs> this one is extremely expensive. So, you know. And is that worth it? Like looking beautiful? Is exactly. that really going to yeah, help the bottom line? Is it, it, it going to make that much difference? You mm. know, it needs to look new. It needs to be clean. Yes. It needs to all that kind of stuff. And we are going to have a live stream from the kitchen oh, into the cool. shop. So it does need to look nice. Yeah. But we don't necessarily have to have the whole 2,000 square foot of it <laughs> white rock walled. <laughs> you know, Stainless steel perfection. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about kind of understanding what's really going to make the difference and reconnecting with where I was then and like keeping the right costs low and investing in the right place. Yeah. One of the things that a lot of startups and new entrepreneurs get into trouble with is taking on outside capital Mm -hmm. so how did you choose your investment partners and again what advice have you got for anybody who's 
looking at that route? For me, I think it was really about getting the right partner that understood us as a social enterprise. It's absolutely core to what we do. So we don't want somebody dictating to us that we must have an exit in five years and we must sell the business for X times. For us, it was just about we want to grow the business. We want to provide more training opportunities and more jobs for unemployed young people. And we're happy to give a return to an investor. I think that's only fair, but it's not because I'm going to sell. Okay. Yeah. So back to what you were saying, Sophie, is actually make sure it's all documented what each party is But also is that they're sharing your values. I yeah. mean, those people are clearly interested in the impact exactly. in terms of creating jobs. Sure. You know, and the people who've invested in Divine, they want to see thriving cocoa communities mm. in places like Ghana. And patient finance is invaluable. Yes. I mean, yeah. finance that doesn't spend, I mean, so lots of money wants in and out, out so yeah. quickly mm. that people like you and I spend our whole time having to find new money. Yeah. Mm. And then we can't grow the business at all. Yes. Mm. So the fact that our investors have yeah. been so patient. Yeah has been fantastic, but they're also really proud of us and they talk about us through all of their channels. Mm, yeah. mm. So then they hear about the chocolate, you know, so it's, it, it, it works But well. don't you think that patient finance, patient capital is kind of really only available for the sort of social enterprise sector? It's a mindset of investors that really are into sort of impact investing. You're sort of purely for-profit, no social type business the investor that sort of invests in those is the person that wants quick in and quick out. And that's the majority of businesses. So obviously that's not what you both do, but is there advice for those entrepreneurs? I think it's the majority of businesses so far. I really passionately believe that a more equitable distribution of wealth, which social enterprises deliver, is the model for the 21st century. Yeah. Well, you're talking about 20th century models of business. They're yeah. not flexible. Mm -hmm. They're not good for women. Yeah. They're not good for the environment. Yeah. And they're not good for, for, society. for society as yeah. a whole. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because those Victorian companies that set up, people like Cadbury's and mm -hmm. Quaker's and Clark's mm -hmm. Shoes, they actually all were good for the community mission. around them. Yeah. And so actually we're not saying something that's radical here. Yeah. We're saying actually, you know, we're people first. Yeah. You know, you need to look after the people yeah. that work for you. You need to look after your customers. Yeah. You need to look up after the community that you exist in. It makes sense. Yeah. And so I think this is a model for the 21st century. You are so right, Sophie. And also the businesses that you've just mentioned, they're the ones that have lasted 100, 200 yes. years because yeah. of that. So, yeah. Yeah. so later in the show, we're going to be talking to Jonathan from NatWest about how NatWest supports social entrepreneurs and helps social enterprises grow. Sophie, you were saying that you had a great relationship with your relationship manager for many years. Yes, we were together for 11 years. It was amazing. And they were really fantastic in terms of if you think in 1999, social enterprise was an unusual thing. Yeah. Setting up a chocolate company in such a competitive market was pretty unheard of. And he was really patient and really supportive. And I also think the bank itself learned a lot about social enterprise and has supported social enterprises in terms of things like training their managers to actually understand what it is. In the manager's manual, it actually talks about social enterprise. So if you came in to a local branch and said, I want to set up a social enterprise, they'd know what you were talking about. So I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> it's true, it's those things, isn't it? So let's talk about mentorship and how important that is. I mean, with my career, I've been so fortunate. I've had some fantastic mentors and would never have been able to do what I've done without them. Um, was that the same for you with your business? Yeah, I mean, I've had them before we started. Yeah, they've been absolutely imperative to the way that we've grown. The mentor that I had kind of pre-startup I had him for two years now actually sits on the board mm -hmm. I think it's just important to have 
people from different spaces. So although mm. he's very connected to the business, then, mm. you know, we've got them through the Entrepreneurial Spark program. Also amazing female entrepreneurs in Birmingham. It's a thriving community. Wow. And also, you know, my partner, a couple of people in my family also run businesses. So yeah, we do talk about work a little bit too much, but it's <laughs> good to have that support. Well, this is not just work. It's your passion, isn't yes, it? Yeah. It's your calling, as it were. Uh, well, NatWest Women in Business is all about helping you become better educated, inspired and connected on your journey in business. We thought we'd hand it over to Jonathan, one of our women in business specialists, to share some top tips on building a network. My name is Jonathan Coates. I'm a relationship director at NatWest and part of the Women in Business Initiative. Women in Business, um, what's that all about? So it's supporting female entrepreneurs, helping them to not only work with them when they set up their business, but help that business grow over a period of time. Some of the initiatives that we've introduced include obviously the stuff that we would be expected to do, funding, startup businesses, growth, all that type of thing. But one of the key things for us is the ability for us to enable that small business to network with like-minded individuals, people that they're perhaps targeting as well. So Miss Macaroon might like to start supplying to Selfridges. So we would try and bring a marriage together just simply through the networking events that we do. If you want to start building a network, I suppose the most obvious one in the world that we live in today is to embrace social media. So that's getting a Twitter handle, Facebook, LinkedIn, things like Snapchat, just to get your photography out there. But don't forget the old fashioned way of doing it as well. You need to get out there, meet people and don't be afraid to walk up to people and say, hello, my name is, this is what I do. And hopefully the sparks will start to fly. Jonathan Coates there, one of the NatWest Women in Business Specialists, who also will be joining us in conversation a little later on in the show. Remember, for full information on the Women in Business scheme, just search NatWest Women in Business. I'm June Sarpong, and today I'm joined by Rosie Ginday, founder of Miss Macaroon, and Sophie Tranchell, Managing Director of Divine Chocolate. So, on the subject of networking, Rosie, you are part of Entrepreneurial Spark, which is powered by NetWest, mm -hmm. which is one of, well, it's actually the world's largest free business accelerator. Yeah, oh, it's hello. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's really, really good. You get a business growth enabler for the whole time you're there. You meet every two weeks, and sometimes they support you, and they're your shoulder to cry on. At the time, they're the whipcracker. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's been fantastic for us. You get to do piranha pits, which is kind of a fake dragon's den, and people do really give you a good grilling. Mm. We've got access to loads and loads of mentors. But for me, the most important part is you're there with 80 different entrepreneurs, some of them pre-startups, some of them quite established. But everybody's got their areas of expertise. And mm -hmm. because you're all part of this community, then you really do help each, other. help each other and spend a lot of time just kind of listening to what they have and actually for me it's great to be able to say to my team okay I don't have time to sit down and talk to you about this kind of marketing strategy but there's three marketing agencies yeah. over there why don't you just go <laughs> pick their brains because they'll know so much more than yeah. I do anyway yeah. and everyone's really willing to help brilliant okay so Sophie obviously we've spoken about product development let's talk about the selling you know what was that journey like and how hard was it to convince the supermarkets and shops to take the product I think we came at it in lots of 
different ways. I mean, so we did get consumers to well, hand, had your hand card, in postcards, <laughs> which, I which was obviously extraordinary, actually. You need to do those cards. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but also we had a lot of support from people. Like, I mean, Comic Relief gave us amazing support. So they did Celebrity Big Brother when we first started. So that was the first ever Celebrity Big Brother. And they had the commercial indents and they oh. gave us them. And they gave us them with three weeks. Oh and so we had to gosh. get them produced and censored and on air in three weeks. But what an amazing opportunity. Amazing. Ten million people seeing it. Oh, my goodness. Um, we did an advert on television, which, again, Comic Relief got us Ben Elton. And so that sort of sense of actually getting people to start to notice we were there was very key in terms of getting it stocked by supermarkets because yeah. they needed to know that somebody was going to buy it. Yeah. I think the other thing that happened was one of the other shareholders in the beginning with the body shop. Okay. And so they actually stocked Divine in their shops from Valentine's Day to Mother's Day, sort okay. of, so over the Easter yeah. period. And that meant we could do national advertising and say you can get it. So At then people tasted it and then they could ask for it somewhere else. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the thing we were needing to get over was how do you spend money on advertising and it not be a waste because nobody can get hold of it. Yes. And so the body shop thing gave us a real opportunity. But also their customer base is already interested in where things come from, is already aware yeah. of the fact yeah. that things come from natural products. Yeah. And so it was a very warm audience. I mean, I think we were incredibly persistent. We knocked on doors and knocked on doors and knocked on doors. I think once you actually get in there, we've had some interesting ones with people who sort of went, you know, you've got 10 minutes and then 45 minutes later we're going, you know, actually it's too early for us to do this sort of thing fair trade's not down this channel yet but what can we do to help you know come back to us later nearly everybody we went to we got reasonably good responses and then from. you always went back yeah so we always went back i mean my one that i probably went the longest at was i really wanted to get some coverage in waitrose food illustrated because it's just such a beautiful magazine i think it took me eight years it did look good once it came through <laughs> i hope you framed that <laughs> I think also the thing that's interesting about that time is actually what were the stories about Africa in in nineteen mm, you know in two thousand yeah. is there was only stories that were Children about famine and, famine yeah. you know, famine and carnage yeah. and so that sort of sense to say well this is about a positive story of enterprise which yeah. is empowering farmers and empowering women and actually all you need to do is buy a bar of chocolate mm. and we got some fantastic coverage because mm. I mean people like the Daily Mirror I remember them running a story saying you know the women who've never tasted chocolate. That was the way you got the hook. Mm. But actually, they then told the story of Divine. So, I mean, I think we were very good at getting unpaid for media, which yeah. helped us then get people's attention, which then helped us get onto the shelf, which then enabled people to go to in sales. and buy it. And then the network of people like Christian Aid supporters have been amazing. They go into shops up and down the country and they are phoning me up and, and telling me, oh, it's not stuck very nicely in this shop. I, I reshelved <laughs> it there. Oh, it's all fallen over. <laughs> and so, I mean, think using everything that's available to you is part of the trick when you start up, isn't it? It is. And then what's been the hardest thing? I think the thing that's most difficult in Britain is that, you know, there's not very many players in it. It's no. very concentrated. And so that sense of having to keep on going back to these people yeah. and negotiating with them and getting... I mean, so the financial crisis caused the pound to sink and caused our prices to go up. We've just had it again with the Brexit vote. That sense as a small company of getting price rises through big retailers. It's, it's difficult. really, really difficult. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the least fun bit and the most difficult bit is getting those prices through but you have to you have to you have to you can't sell things below what you're buying them for <laughs> or you can't sell them so low that you've got no money to invest yeah. because everybody else on the shelf is investing in promotion for something so, so you 
you've got to be able to promote. So you need to make sure that the way you're modelling your business, you've got enough money to do the things that other people in your category do. I do, mm. and also with product development, yes. coming up with new flavours yes. and so on. Yeah. Have either of you ever had any failures that you've learned from? Multiple. I'll, get, I'll jump into that one. <laughs> but What's be, the one that you remember the most that still hurts? Um, that still hurts, to be honest. It, so uh, I started the business with the idea that it was just going to be employing people that had come through the course. So at that point, we were just working with ex-offenders. Okay. And it was a great ideal. And if somebody had said, Rosie, Miss Macarena's a great idea. I want you to not employ... 100% ex-offenders, I want you to employ three professionals to one trainee. Yeah. I would have said, that's not a social enterprise. Yeah. Um, but actually, that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it because I tried it 100% and it just didn't work. And it was my fault because I was setting them up to fail. Yeah. So only going through that process did I learn that yeah. you need a much stronger structure around them. Yeah. So for me, although... At that point, I probably felt like it was a failure. It was absolutely the right thing for the business. Mm. And it does still hurt because actually I feel like I let those people down. Mm -hmm. Although it was really important to do for the business and we have changed a lot of things because of that, it was a huge learning point. At what point, how far into the business did you realise you needed to shift that? So they were my first two employees. First two. And then that was like a six-month thing. And then it was just straight away. It's like, okay, we need to just be much stronger. stronger business and provide a lot more support i get it wow okay we're gonna end on a good note uh what's the best thing about being an entrepreneur so i think you completely set your own agenda you decide (laughs) what you're gonna do each day don't you really (laughs) and you can and you know obviously how hard is it coming to work and deciding which chocolate we're gonna sell (laughs) (laughs) i'd actually have to say the same thing yeah you get to choose what you want to do you do have to do everything as well. So, yes. yeah, you sometimes you don't get to choose and you do have to do the boring things. But for me, I just absolutely love learning new skills. So that's why I love the growing phase of the business because you do get to try your hand at so many new things. But, yeah, I get to choose. So it's fun. Well, we love ending on a high. Um, so, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. And, I, and the, the, the macaroons are to die for. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rosie, you're going to stick around for a little bit longer. Yes. Uh, and so we can uh, chat to Jonathan. Fantastic, thank you. You're listening to the NatWest Women in Business podcast with me, June Sarpong. Thanks again to Sophie Tranchell from Divine Chocolate. Still with me in the studio, Rosie Ginday, founder of Miss Macaroon, our featured woman in business. What a great session with Sophie there. Any special takeaways for you? Any new inspiration? Yeah, hugely. I mean, that postcard marketing so activity clever. was so <laughs> clever. Yeah, it's amazing. Just her idea of use what you have when you're starting out. Anything that you have at your disposal, just use it. I yeah. think that's fantastic. And just the whole story is completely inspirational. What they've achieved is amazing. It really is. And I love the collaboration she did with Comic Relief as yeah. well. God yeah, goodness. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So what's next for Miss Macaroon? What is the long-term plan? The long-term plan is just to scale, to have as many Miss Macaroon shops in as many cities as possible and train stations all over the country and just get our macaroons and Prosecco out there. Just keep innovating with new flavours. This last week gone, we just had our Miss Macaroon takeover. We invited our next door neighbour, who's Delhi, yeah. to bring some of their ingredients. And we had duck, foie gras and fig <laughs> macaroons. We had French tarragon and pastrami. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was really good. We had a Baudillon Spanish blue cheese macaroon. It was stunning. Really good. Really? Mm. My goodness. So how many stores would you like in, let's say, five years? 
We're aiming for 100. Ooh. Yeah. So all we're in gonna, the UK? All in the UK. Mm. So we're going to start off really slow, mm-hmm. really test it out, really kind of bed in the first three and learn everything from that. Just create a shop in a box so we can just roll out super quick. Yeah. And then if we lay down some strong foundations, then that's achievable. Brilliant. Well, joining us in the studio for the final part of the show is Jonathan Coates, our Women in Business Specialist. So, Jonathan, uh, do you fancy some uh, foie gras macaroon? I could be persuaded. (laughs) (laughs) Three-course meal. Three-course meal (laughs) macaroons, exactly. You can start doing macaroon restaurants. Yeah. (laughs) So now, Jonathan, we've been talking a lot about social enterprise. So how does NatWest Women in Business offer support for those looking to combine business, or should I say profit, with purpose? Yeah, so we um, offer a range of banking services, both to conventional businesses and to social enterprises. A number of our managers have got stronger focus on social enterprises mm-hmm. and will probably spend a large part of their working week helping them to develop their ideas and put all of that positivity back into their business and the economy. Um, social enterprises are very important because they're often act as that anchor that take businesses through that development phase. I do a lot of work with Cockpit Arts, which is an incubator, but they're a social enterprise as well. And they work with you know, people like Rosie when she first started out, providing them with a place of business and for them to develop skills. And Nat West has introduced and works with Entrepreneurial Spark, which again is an incubator. And the difference with that is that it's free of charge and it really helps small businesses to be able to find somewhere to network, somewhere to position and place their business off the back of that hopefully they'll grow mm. and um, develop and uh, form networks with those people that, that, that's sitting alongside them yeah. mm. so rosie how have the women in business team helped you absolutely as jonathan said really key introductions to potential customers have been fantastic yeah so inviting us to sector events and also celebration events you meet lots of corporates because we do have a lot of corporate customers so yeah we do a range of beautiful bespoke corporate gifts so really those kind of connections are, are brilliant for us just to build those is relationships. Is that a core part of the business? It is a huge part of the business yeah I mean we can match exactly to your brand colours so yeah they do look really really visually impactful and as you said they taste lovely as well. Oh, it's yeah. fabulous exactly <laughs> and so Jonathan one of the things I was wondering is how big does a company need to be to sort of access this service can it be just like a woman on her own yeah well our women in business initiative is open to a startup business really through to someone that continues on that journey up to corporate level with all that dedication and a willingness to support female entrepreneurs so bring it on bring it on so jonathan why have a whole range of services aimed particularly at women why not just have something general that works for everyone um, I think sort of looking back, if you go back to sort of 15, 20 years, it's the guys that have tended to be the ones that have driven lots of businesses. Yeah. Well, they're certainly the ones that used to come into the bank and ask to borrow money. But then when you go out to the, see the business, it's usually the partner, <laughs> um, the children, you know, the daughters that are the ones doing that are really work. doing all of the work sort of thing. And uh, you kind of think that's not quite right, is it? Mm. So... Um, I think, you know, to a certain extent, it's a confidence thing, maybe. Oh, do I stay in that job that I've been in for the last 10 years? Or do I set up my own business? And it's just trying to encourage people to say, well, we're here to help you. I mean, I'm blown away by Miss Macaruna over there. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. So, do you and, think women are different in business to men? 
more risk adverse has probably been bandied about quite a bit, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily a bad thing because when they think about taking a risk, they've thought about it long and hard yeah. before they actually, for example, come to the bank and say that I want you to help me with this. Yeah, because I think all that's the data, thing. exactly, all the data shows that actually women-run businesses do better. Yep, yep. I don't want to sort of alienate the guys, but I always find that female entrepreneurs tend to be a safe pair of hands as well. Mm-hmm. So. So how much is the UK economy missing out on in not having enough female entrepreneurs? Well, I read a piece of research that was undertaken by Deloitte's, the accountancy firm, and presented to the Women's Business Council, suggested that if female entrepreneurs were as active as male male entrepreneurs, by the year 2025, £180 would have been added to the UK economy. Staggering. (laughs) 80 billion. 180 wow. billion. Wow. Wow. Well, we need a few more Rosies. Well, we do. We do, don't we? <laughs> we need a few more of them. Have you got any friends, Rosie? I've got quite a few and they're yeah. all interested. Oh, so. good. <laughs> Give not, them Jonathan's Not number. macaroons, though. <laughs> So, Jonathan, Rosie just mentioned possibly going to NatWest in a couple of years to get a loan so that they can purchase their own premises. Is that the sort of thing that NatWest helps businesses with? And support? Yeah, certainly. Um, we would look to support a premises purchase. In addition, we fund working capital in a variety of different ways. Any asset purchases for the factory, so things like your ovens. Ovens, mm-hmm. yeah. Any machinery that needs to be financed, we can do all of that for you. As you start to export, if that's on the radar, we certainly we can protect the mechanism for getting the money, so mm-hmm. we can help you with that. And we can also look at putting in something in place to protect foreign exchange risk. Yeah. Because that's been volatile. If we look at where... Mm. Yeah, with Brexit. Yeah. Where the pound Sophie is at the moment. about that. Yeah, yeah, we can look at putting some structures in place for that as well. So mm. lots we can do to minimise the risk in your business and um, watch the business grow and flourish in a positive way. So where can we find out more? We can look at our website. You can pop into any of our branches... Oh, you can come and see me. <laughs> <laughs> and where are you, Jonathan? I'm based in Oxford Circus. So we're in the heart of, uh, yeah, especially if you're a retailer or a wholesaler, I'm in the heart of the West End. Yeah, brilliant. So that's where they can find yeah, you. Yeah, that's where they can find me. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Rosie, it's been an absolute pleasure. What a brilliant business you have. Thanks so much for having me. And when I'm next in Birmingham, I look forward to coming to your shop. Please do. Yeah. Then. Open a bottle of Prosecco especially for you. Why not? Thanks again for listening to the NatWest Women in Business podcast. Remember, you can find more about the Women in Business Incentive and how NatWest team of over 400 specialists can help you simply by searching NatWest Women in Business. And remember, if you want to talk to NatWest about funding, security may be required, product fees may apply, and you must be over 18. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more inspirational stories. But for now, from me, June Sarpong, goodbye. Goodbye.